Good morning. My name is River, and I'll be reading this scripture. Now, after this, the Lord designated 72 others and sent them out two by two before his face into every town and any place where he himself was about to travel. First, he began telling them, the harvest is great, but the laborers few. So entreat the Lord of, har of the harvest to spread out laborers for his harvest. Start your journey. Look, I'm sending you out as if you were lambs among wolves. Don't burden yourself with a money pouch or bag or sandals, and don't greet anyone on the road. In whatever household you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a child of peace is there, the peace that you will have will come to rest upon them. But if not, it will return upon you. Abide in that very household, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer is worthy of his wage. Don't move from one household to another. In whatever town you're entering, where they're welcoming you, eat what's being set before you, and always heal the sick there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But in whatever town you enter, where they don't welcome you, go out into its broad streets and say, even the dust that's clung to us from your town, we're wiping off our feet in your case. But be aware of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I'm telling you, for Sodom, in that day, there'll be something more tolerable than for that town. Alas for you, Corazon. Alas for you, Bersaida. For it, the deeds of power that have happened in you had happened to Tyre and Sidon, Sidon. Even long ago, they would have repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, Tyre and Sidon. There'll be, there'll be something more tolerable in the judgment than for you in Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll go down to Hades. Anyone who's listening to you is listening to me, and the one who's rejecting you is rejecting me. But the one who's rejecting me is the one who's rejecting the one who sent me. The, seven, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the destructive powers are submiss submissive to us because of your name, who you are. Then Jesus said to them, I was, I was watching the accuser as he fell like lightning from heaven. Look, I've given you the authority to tread over snakes and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy, and nothing will ever damage you. But don't just rejoice about the fact that the spirits are submissive to you, but rejoice because your own names have been inscribed in God's realms. At that very time, Jesus celebrated in the Holy Spirit and said, I am praising you, Father, Lord of the heaven and earth, because you hid these things from me, from wise adults and smart adults, and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because you saw, because you saw that this way was just what you desired. All things were given to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and any to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. When he turned to the disciples in private, Jesus said, Blessed are the eyes that, you, that see what you are seeing, for I'm telling you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you're seeing, 
but they didn't see and want to hear what you are hearing, but they didn't hear. Well, it's genuinely wonderful to see all of you uh, out there this morning and share this time of worship. Um, Emily uh, is away, and, but uh, it was great to see the praise team, and they just rejoice in all that they did to lead us in worship today. If you haven't uh, gotten one of the sheets that has on it the scripture that you just heard River read so beautifully for us, and also notes that I'm going to be following. Uh, if you want one, hold your hand up and someone from at the back will bring you, bring you one so that you can have it as we uh, go into this, this time together. Uh, so many things to think about. Of course, all of those who are struggling with sickness and all of that. I, of course, one thing that's on our mind as congregation is the, um, is the retreat that we had uh, last week. And I just want to thank all of you who, who came and participated in the, in the retreat, especially those who are either brand new or relatively new to our community. Uh, I personally just had a great time and got better acquainted with a lot of people, and I uh, enjoyed all of that. Thanks so much to Julie uh, Short and to Emily and to Jason and Kyle and Carl and all of the, the volunteers, especially those that work with the kids and youth like Chris and Chloe uh, Cope. Uh, I want to say one other thing, though. If you haven't gone on our website or on YouTube to watch the uh, last week's worship service here in Manhattan, I want to urge you to do so. I want to give thanks to George Watson and Eric Perriman, uh, who led our, the music uh, here last week, along with Amy Henniger, who was uh, back from the West Coast that mistake that she made long ago there of going out west. Um, and uh, because she was in town, she came and participated enthusiastically and beautifully in the, uh, in the praise team. And special thanks to, to Kyle, to Kyle Swan. He preached here in Manhattan last Sunday, taking the, um, the role that for many years Reggie Jackson uh, had had on each retreat uh, Sunday, uh, though he was, of course, as all of, all of you who are part of this congregation know, he was one of those who was taken away from us at the very beginning of the, uh, of the pandemic. Kyle's sermon, which is entitled, Do You Want to Get Well? on John 5, uh, about Jesus healing the paralyzed man, just so harmonized so deeply and beautifully with the experience of, of the retreat. And as has already been said, I just want to urge everyone to keep the process of the retreat. It's, you know, whenever you, as a kid, you come back from camp, you always wonder, can't we have camp all the time? You know, and that's what Jason was, uh, I guess, referring to earlier. Uh, and, and maybe so. But, um, but the idea of us being connected to each other and connected to Jesus is something that is a continual process for us as we, as we grow together. This morning, as you heard uh, 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 River read that, that scripture, we're going back into our journey with Luke in his gospel. The text from uh, Luke 10 is uh, maybe perhaps long. You've, you've read it there, and, and it's very substantial. But I think it meshes really well 
with what we've been exploring in the last few weeks in John's gospel around the retreat. Jesus' image of the vine and the branches and how we are connected in him into the very life of God and into each other's lives and indeed into the life of the whole world. The text that you heard read and that you have on your sheet, if, you, if you've got it or if you open your Bibles, it's, uh, it's Luke chapter 10 verses 1 through 24 is full of metaphor and images. That, after all, is how Jesus taught. But I think in many ways it embodies what Luke really wants to happen in the whole gospel. So in a sense, it's a crucial passage uh, in those metaphors for what Luke wants uh, us to experience as we read the gospel of Jesus as he is offering it to us. Luke wants us readers to see the challenge of following Jesus, of learning Jesus, of joining with Jesus in his great and long-expected but radically surprising ministry by watching his disciples. We can, to some extent, as we read about them, identify with them because they are flawed, or, or at least they're, they're limited, certainly as, as, as limited, maybe more limited, but uh, no less than we are. They are human beings. In Galilee, Jesus, <clears throat> if you remember back to the beginning of chapter 9, and I included a, a, a few verses from chapter 9 there at the beginning on the back side of your, your sheet of notes. Um, in Galilee, Jesus had sent out the 12 after he, he named them. And um, the result was a kind of success. It, it raised the question, as Luke tells us about it, that of who Jesus is. Uh, asking that question. He even raised it in the mind of such as, as King Herod Antipas, uh, even though he was rather a, a tin-horned tyrant at that time. He was the one who killed John the Baptist. It led to, to Peter confessing Jesus as anointed king, as Messiah. But as you remember, if you were in, involved in those, those studies, that it's, it's still a very mixed uh, result. It's, as Peter confesses, Jesus' response is not to say, yes, we're home, free, we've got it, we've made it, you understand. No, he rebukes them and commands them not to tell about him as anointed king, as, as Messiah. They can't grasp what king means, what Jesus' suffering and death can mean and will mean, and what certainly resurrection will mean. Then as Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem, which was the, our last segment in this series in the Gospel of Luke, that long journey that begins at chapter 9, verse 51, and continues on into the 18th chapter, Jesus sends out messengers. He sends out messengers into the towns that he's going to be going through as he heads south from, from uh, Galilee into Samaria. And those Samaritan towns reject, reject the, 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 these messengers. And then the, his disciples, James and John, want to call down fire from heaven to destroy those towns. <sighs> and Jesus has to rebuke them. And uh, they just simply go on to another town. Then we had the story, you remember, of the three volunteers who want to be disciples of Jesus. 
And Jesus warns them about the difficulty of it. Foxes have holes. The birds of the heavens have nests. Do you remember? There's no putting your hand to the plow and turning back. And so now as he's headed toward Jerusalem, Jesus sends out 72 more. Not just the 12, but six times the 12. More into God's harvest as he talks about it. Listen again to those, those words, because hearing the words of the, the scripture is really the key to, to all of this, not, not particularly my words. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 on your sheet or in your Bible. Now, after this, the Lord designated 72 others and sent them out two by two before his face. Remember that? That was his echo of the Old Testament scriptures. Into every town and any place where he himself was about to travel. First, he began telling them, the harvest is great, but the laborers few. A little later, he's going to refer to them as laborers. So entreat the Lord of the harvest to spread out laborers in, uh, for his harvest. Start your journey. Look, I'm sending you out as if you were lambs among wolves. Don't burden yourself with a money pouch or a bag, or sandal, and don't greet anyone on the road. It's like with the 12, if you read that passage from chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, that's there on your, your sheet, you'll see that, that they're being sent out by Jesus, but they're not permitted to take basic resources that they would need. They don't take a money bag, with, I suppose, the implication of money being in it, but everybody knows if you're going to go out, you're going to have some expenses. You need some money with you. And you would think that he might want to tell them, take quite a bit of money so that you can give it to people. You know, give it to those that are in need. That's, that's something you ought to be doing. I think, though, maybe, well, think about why he would say this. They already understand giving money to people. Money as protection against what might happen. But they're needing to learn something different. Don't take a bag. That's like Jesus not saying don't take an extra tunic. Don't, no suitcases here. No backpacks. Don't even wear sandals. Wow. Whew, I wouldn't be able to do it. I can't walk barefoot out on a rough place for anything. Don't even wear sandals. Clearly, they're vulnerable. Jesus makes it very explicit. It's as though, I, it's though, it's though you were lambs in the midst of wolves. So they go out, even with all of that, but with a commission for a rather strange way of encountering people. Here's what Jesus says. And whatever household you enter, just think of somebody not coming to your door, first say, peace to this house. And if a child of peace is there, the peace that you have will come to rest upon them. But if not, it will return upon you. Abide. 
in that very household. That word abide, I translated it abide specifically to echo the way in which that, we use that word in the Gospel of John. Remain, stay, stay there for that relationship, for that situation. Abide in that very household. Eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer, that's you, is worthy of his weight. Don't move about from one household to another. Don't shop for the best offer, so to speak. In whatever town you're entering, where they're welcoming you, eat what's being set before you, and always heal the sick in that place. Heal the sick there. And tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, so no money, no bag for carrying anything extra, not even sandals. What do they take? They take <laughs> peace. They take peace. They come to a household and they pronounce peace. And sounds like what Jesus means is that somehow their peace is going to come upon that household, that place. They're, they take a kind of, uh, well, might say almost naive trust. They're trusting people, eating whatever they're given there. They come with the knowledge that they can be accepted or rejected. They give freedom to people to accept or to reject. And they come healing, healing those that are sick. And as we learn later when they return, healing also those that are struggling with other kinds of things, with the daimonia, with those evil powers that were taking over people's lives. Something that they perhaps don't even realize they have, though, is their identity as disciples of Jesus. They have Jesus' name, Jesus, who Jesus is, who he is as a human being who is also the very presence of God among us humans. So they come as a living sign of the coming kingdom of God. And so they're set out, 36 pairs. Think about it. Would you take on this mission? Like I said, I couldn't go without sandals, so I'd have to say no. Um, I don't think anybody really smart would do this. They have plenty to worry about as they go out. They're very vulnerable. And remember somebody like John the Baptist, all it took was get, getting crossed with somebody in power and his head came off. But the disciples go out, those 36 pairs, carrying only peace and healing and God's kingdom. How could they possibly think it would work? They speak peace to this house. I suppose they followed Jesus' instruction. When they came to a household and they were allowed to step inside, they pronounced that peace. <laughs> what would happen if I did that? Uh, nothing. Or would it? 
it happens. Peace envelops the household. This is turning the world to work in a different way. They can't heal anybody, and they know it. But they go with Jesus' commission, and it happens. They, they do it with Jesus' identity, with who he is in his name. Something that's so unexpected. People resist. And Jesus knows that individuals and whole towns are going to reject them. People who just know that things don't work like this. They don't work like any of this stuff that these people are doing. Jesus knows that natural impulse to strike back when rejection comes. That's what happened with James and John. To call down fire from heaven. But each person is free to choose. There's no threat. Listen to 10, chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, which you have in front of you. In whatever town you enter, where they don't welcome you, go out into the broad streets and say, even the dust that's clung to us from your town, we're wiping off our feet in your case. Don't know exactly how to translate in your case. A lot of times this is translated as though it's a curse or something like that. It's, there's not a single word of cursing here. It's just that it's I, it's a separation. We're leaving this place behind, every part of this place. But be aware of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's what they were to say when people welcomed them. That's what they were to say when people did not welcome them because that was the fundamental thing. Jesus had already told the disciples, I don't want you yet there's a yet implied because the story unfolds further down the line. But I don't want you telling about me as the Messiah, as the anointed king, because you don't understand it. But I do want you telling people about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, of God's rule. And you take that in into these places. You can see how hard it is even for us to really understand what is going on. What did they do? They come in and sit down at the table and they, they're ready to eat whatever's there. Do they just sit and eat in silence? Well, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine they tell stories about what they've been doing, what's been going on about Jesus. And people hear about this strange thing of, the, of this man, this teaching this one who is God's presence, who forgives sins, who heals the sick, this sign of God's renewal and restoration, this kingdom of God that's breaking in. But the choices of these varied people matter. As Jesus says in verse 16 in your text, the message of the disciples that people hear is from himself. The disciples don't have a personal message of their own. And Jesus' words are from the Father who sent him. Chapter 10, verse 16. Anyone who's listening to you is listening to me. And the one who's rejecting you is rejecting me. But 
one who's rejecting me is rejecting the one who sent me. Now, rejecting God is living in something else than reality, a distorted reality, a non-reality. Even people who believe in a doctrine of God, in, the, in the, the fact of God, often push God aside as kind of an extra personal preference or non-preference, an add-on rather than the central reality of the universe. Of the universe and all that's beyond the universe, whatever that is. The central reality then of our own lives as well. Jesus says, just simply leave that place. Your words, my words, the Father's words are not going to bear fruit. But if people can't see right now, if they don't see, if they won't listen, simply go on to another town, another person, just like we did before whenever James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven. Leave judgment to God. People don't see the fundamental distortion of rejecting God in this way. Because that distortion is the reality that they and that we live in. It follows the self-defined reality of the human world. It's what every person learns as we grow up, as we become wise, sophisticated humans, wise, sophisticated adults. Once we've learned it, it's very hard to see outside its defining boundaries. But people change. People are in flux. They can change. They can learn. These passages that talk about Sodom and all of that, they're Jesus echoing Old Testament passages that speak of judgment on whole towns. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 12 and going down through verse 15. I'm telling you that for Sodom, just think of all that that brings to mind, that for Sodom in that day, there'll be something more tolerable than for that town. Alas for you, Chorazin, Alas for you, Bethsaida, for if the deeds of power that have happened in you had happened in Tyre and Sidon, even long ago they would have repented. That is, they would have changed their whole way of thinking, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But for Tyre and Sidon, there will be something more tolerable in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, that was the center where Jesus worked. It became his home after he left Nazareth. Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll go down to Hades. And here he's quoting from Isaiah 14 and 11 through 15. Oh, really? Wow. Now that is harsh. Just that word, Sodom. It takes you back to Genesis 19 and all that fire and brimstone, the sulfur, raining down from heaven to destroy the city. That's just what James and John wanted to call down on those first towns that rejected Jesus' messengers. 
These were Samaritan towns that didn't want Jesus because he was headed to Jerusalem. They deserve what they get. But Jesus, as we said, rebuked his own disciple. He did not want them even to want that kind of apocalyptic judgment. He and his followers simply went on to another town. Jesus' metaphors and hyperbole and all this are intended to shake us into seeing what's at stake, but also to realize that the story is never really over with God and his mercy. Now, to compare a town to Sodom might seem as bad as it gets. It's like comparing somebody to Hitler or to a child abuser or something like that in our day. But the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel use that very comparison in relationship to Jerusalem. They spoke of Jerusalem as worse than Sodom before Jerusalem's destruction and before the Babylonian exile. Sodom, though, was spoken of by these prophets. Ezekiel has a long passage about Sodom. He says Sodom was proud and and at prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy, and therefore judgment came upon it. But remarkably, part of the comparison was God's ability to give hope and restoration even to the worst, even to Sodom, even to Jerusalem as it was at that time. This is Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 53 through 55. I've left out a few phrases here and there to make it a little shorter. I will restore the fortunes of, this is after a long thing about the condemnation of Sodom and Jerusalem. I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes, Jerusalem, along with theirs. In order that you may be ashamed of all that you have done, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. (laughs) Hope for Sodom? Amazing. God's work. God's grace is not finished. Just go on to another town. Chorazin, Bethsaida, these cities around the, the, the Sea of Galilee, he compares to the sophisticated powers of Tyre and Sidon with their pride and their self-sufficiency and their seeming invulnerability, especially Tyre was known because of its island uh, status, was known for its invulnerability. Ezekiel has three whole chapters on Tyre and Sidon in Ezekiel 26 to 28. And Isaiah 2 has a long passage in Isaiah 23. For Capernaum, Jesus draws on Isaiah's oracle against Babylon, the great Babylon that had destroyed Jerusalem. And echoes that as it, it says, you said in your heart, I'll be exalted to heaven. But you will be brought down, you are brought down to Sheol, to Hades. Now, in all of this, Jesus is using, of course, metaphorical language, comparative language. Cities, as such, don't choose anything, people do. But these images from the prophets draw to mind centers of power, self aggrandizing confidence. 
wise sophistication, a sense of invulnerability. And individual people like us, like us adults, are often shaped in our thinking by the larger cultures of city, society, culture and entertainment, popular philosophy and so forth. That that we're surrounded by, like the water we're swimming in. Rejecting God is choosing to live in a distorted reality. But we're masters of our faith, we think. We don't need a God hypothesis, we think. Or we like the God hypothesis that we have exalted out of reach. Even though our very existence comes not from ourselves, but from God. We're smart. We may go through the motions of praising God while pushing God out of the existential center of our lives. That brings us to the last section of our text, the return of the 72, and Jesus' response to their joy. And here it is, I think, that it points, to, it points us to the whole purpose that Luke hopes for us to gain as he leads us through the story of Jesus. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 21. The 72 return with joy. Rather than nothing working, everything seems to have worked. Saying, Lord, even the destructive power, not just diseases, the, the daimonia, the demons are, are submissive to us because of your name, who you are. Then Jesus said to, him, to them, I was watching the accuser, Satan, the Satan, as he fell like lightning from heaven. Look, I've given you the authority to tread over snakes and scorpions. That's how it's leading the Israelites through the, through the desert, it's talked about. And upon all the powers of the enemy, and nothing will ever damage you. Oh, wow. How do I even begin to take that in? But don't just rejoice about the fact that the spirits are submissive to you. But rejoice because your own names have been inscribed in the heavens, in God's realms. At that very time, Jesus celebrated in the Holy Spirit and said, I'm praising you, Father, Lord of the heaven and the earth, because you hid these things from wise and smart adults and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because you saw that this way was just what you desire. Notice that last verse, verse 21. God hid these things from wise and smart grown-ups and revealed them to infants. Who are the infants? Well, they're those very disciples that he's talking to. Jesus is celebrating in the Holy Spirit and praising God for this. I don't know. I mean, you would see if you just read right over it, but it's really surprising. In, in many ways, it's, it even, it's even offensive. 
It certainly doesn't seem to be very positive toward the disciples. The disciples are babies. They're, they're toddlers. We want to be wise adults. We're New Yorkers. That's better than Tyre or Sidon or Babylon ever were. As Jesus sees the disciples, these disciples, in their limited mission out of these small towns and villages, he says that he was watching the fall of Satan, the fall of the accuser, falling like lightning from the sky. They moved with Jesus' authority to walk over snakes and scorpions, just as Moses described the way God protected the Israelites and led them Quote, through the vast and fearsome wilderness with poisonous snakes and scorpions. Deuteronomy 8, 15. The disciples were pushed by Jesus not to depend on themselves and their resources, but to actually experience God with a trust that pushed beyond reason. They experienced God using them, connecting with them, using their own small selves in beginning the inbreaking of God's kingdom. They see things. They hear. They feel the reality of God's world long before they come to anything like a full understanding of what God is doing. Now, think with me about how an infant or a toddler learns the world. Just think, most of us in one way or another have experience. Of course, we went through it, but I can't remember how I did it when I was a little, little baby. How an infant learns to sense how reality actually works. Do things go out of existence when you can't see them? It's real. It's still there. Did mom go out of existence when she walked out of the room? What are the different parts of me? What can I wave? And can I get everything that exists into my mouth? How does gravity work? <laughs> can I depend on my parents' love? And care? Is the world a dangerous place or a place where I'm secure, where I can thrive? Think about a little toddler learning to talk. The complexity of language, using nouns and verbs and adjectives without knowing any grammar, learning to walk on two feet, balancing against gravity up over all kinds of things, walking, holding on first, then those first steps, and on down the line, running a marathon. When you're a wise and sophisticated New Yorker, surrounded by a self-focused, self-sufficient society, it's nearly impossible to see a new world, to learn who the Father is, who Jesus is. 
Luke helps us to watch these disciples like infants experiencing that new world. Learning how it works. Learning that it's secure. That they're swimming in God's love. In the last verses of our text, Jesus says, All things were given over to me by my Father. The language is very much like the Gospel of John. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. And any to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. When he turned to the disciples in private, Jesus said, Blessed are the eyes that, are, that see what you are seeing. For I'm telling you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you're seeing, but they didn't see. And to hear what you're hearing, but they didn't hear. <clears throat> wow, just notice that radical assertion of Jesus. No one knows fully who Jesus is except the Father, except God, and fully who God is, except Jesus, as God and human. Everything that's gone before all of the scriptures, everything, all that follows must be understood in the light of Jesus, who is the face of God, the revelation of God among us humans. Amazing. You just can't get any more radical assertion than that. God never overwhelms us with his power and glory so that his reality becomes undeniable to us. He gives us freedom, including the freedom to reject the God of the universe, the central reality of the universe, the central reality of our own lives. That moral freedom, even when it's mistaken and misused, is one of the most crucial things that makes us human. But the reality of God and God's self-giving love is always there. Even when we humans are blind to it, knowing Jesus, bringing God into the center of our human life is the beginning of our realization and experience of what Jesus called over and over again the kingdom of God. We can master our world <laughs> or sometimes often be crushed by, be crushed by it. <clears throat> it's the human world of smart adults in competition for money and power, ethnic pride, political dominance, pleasure, prominence, self-sufficiency. And it's played out, as we've often said, on many scales from a tiny family to the whole globe. But the all-encompassing power and glory of God that gives existence itself to everything, even us, and that conquers death and suffuses life with never-ending love, that we have to learn like little children, feeling our way, a baby touching her mother's face. Jesus brought that whole reality into the range of human experience. Those disciples had gone out trusting Jesus. 
they came back with joy. They had seen, they had heard, they had experienced just a bit of that new world, and it was exhilarating. Luke wants us to walk with them. Blessed are the eyes, our eyes, that are seeing what you're seeing. You may not recognize yet or understand it all, but you are seeing the face of God. Whether you're Peter among the 12 or whether you're one of those 72 or whether you're one of us distant readers, the events of Jesus are at the center. We watch, we listen, we experience, we try out, we, we touch the face, we take the steps. We try to understand how this reality works. We learn to talk and walk like a baby learns. But there's always so much more to come. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we say so often, help us to listen to Jesus. It's just astonishing what he says. Help us to try to take it in, not to filter it out with all that we already know because we're so smart about how the world works, but to listen, to realize that this is the way you want it. Because with all our smarts and all our wisdom, we would never have imagined what you have actually done. We could not imagine a love so generous and saving of you sending not a golden image of yourself, as it were, but a yourself in human form so that we could, in our limited way, know your very face. Help us, Heavenly Father, that we can have the confidence to try it out, to feel our way, to say new words and touch new things and see new visions. Help us to live into that kingdom that was breaking in there then and is breaking in now and will all the way to the end be part of our experience, always breaking in and challenging us and who we are. In that astonishing name of Jesus, who he is, we pray. Amen.